I'm Josh Sigmund, and I'm a mortgage lender. I'm also a geek for money, not just earning it and saving it, but literally everything about it. I love that money has rules. It has its truths. I love investment strategies, and I love making money work for us. For so many, money is emotional. For me, it's logical, like a puzzle. My passion is also helping others with their money. I love looking at people's finances, dissecting their puzzle, and rebuilding with strategy and purpose, and I'm really good at it. I'm making this podcast about my money strategies, not the things that are written in books or sold in programs. It's a podcast outlining the lessons I've learned and used for the past 15 years. These strategies help me and those who use them save more, give more, create wealth, and retire early. Let me teach you how to build your net worth. You ready? Welcome to Sigmund Sense. This is Josh Sigmund, and we're here for another episode of Sigmund Sense. And I feel very lonely and weird staring into this uh, camera right now because we are practicing social distancing. And so I am now in an empty room with no stage, no stage hands. I, so I don't have my producer, my editor. I don't have my cohort. Bryn is not in the room. We decided that's just safer to play by the rules. And so I'm going to attempt to not uh, uh, make this too awkward for you, but um, the show must go on. And so here we go. So in this episode of Sigmund Sense, what we're going to be talking about is um, is really real estate in general and real estate investing and uh, the different types of real estate investing and what that might all look like, the key players involved. Um, you know, it's one of those things I've been doing for years and years and years. And, you know, it's, I guess it's somewhat easier for me because I'm in the industry. So I, I kind of know more about the different aspects, but what I would tell you is that, um, it's not, that it's not learnable. Um, I will tell you that real estate is an excellent place to make money and for sure it's a place that you can lose money too. So, you know, that's your buyer beware. Um, there's a couple of great books. I'll just tell you how I got started in it personally. So even though I was already in mortgages at the time, um, one of the first books I read was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, Robert Kiyosaki. And that's probably what got my uh, eyes turned towards real estate in the first place. Another thing that I've noticed and read over the years is that the vast majority of wealth created in America was uh, a couple different ways. It was either uh, someone that invented something, right? They were born into it for sure. But the primary, uh, uh, um, something like 70% of millionaires created were created through real estate. Um, whether you like him or not, doesn't really matter to me, but, uh, look at the Trump family, you know, Trump family did so through real estate as well. Um, they made millions, they lost it all bankrupted. And then, you know, obviously made it all back and primarily through real estate. So, um, all that to be said, it's, you know, one of the questions is, well, where do I begin? Um, what should I know? What are the pitfalls? What should I look out for? And what are the types? And so I thought for the next 45 minutes to an hour that I would just take the time to kind of walk through that. I can share some of my own stories. Uh, I have had mostly wins. I have had losses. Um, and kind of walk you through how that works and kind of what to look out for uh, in hopes of uh, helping you stay away from stepping on your own landmine, right? But when it comes to real estate, you know, you need to think with the end in mind. It's, it's what are your goals, you know, thinking uh, it's got to be an unemotional approach to money and an unemotional approach to, approach to real estate. Because one of the things I, I remember early on is in my first couple of flips or, or properties I bought for rental properties, I was looking at it with the wrong eyes, meaning that I'd go into it when I was going to paint it or 
uh, stage it or whatever um, from the eyes of what I would want. You know, what would, you know, I'd rather have hardwood floor than carpet. I'd rather have tile than carpet. I'd rather, uh, I'd rather have one story than two story. Uh, I really would rather have a big backyard uh, than a small back, bar, backyard. And the truth of the matter is all those statements I just gave are emotional and they don't matter. Um, if you're just thinking about doing it from a rental pr- perspective. And on the flip side, if you're thinking about flipping a property where you're going to buy a house, put some uh, money into it, fix it up, rehab it, whatever, and then put it back on the market, uh, those concerns might matter more. Uh, but to a point, you still have to measure the money, which is a logical approach, not the emotional side of what looks pretty, right? And so the the starting point, I think, to think about is how do most people get into rentals? So uh, one type of real estate investment is obviously amassing rental properties. And rental properties, uh, obviously the goal, not always, but the goal is to cash flow, where whatever your mortgage payment is on that property, that you, of course, get more rental income than the mortgage payment thus creating uh, wealth monthly as far as cash flow. So you can uh, add money back to your savings account, but also having somebody else pay off your real estate debt. So um, that works very well for a long-term hold. You know, you buy a piece of real estate. Uh, what example, example I see a lot is people have uh, kids. Yeah, a lot of people have kids, it turns out. And they know that in, in 18 or 20 years, those kids are going to go to college and so what they'll do is they'll buy a piece of real estate now in a college town that they think that their kids might want to go to. Um, you know, here in Texas, it might be a college station or it might be, you know, in UT Austin or it might be uh, way out in West Texas by Texas Tech. It doesn't matter. But they'll buy, buy a piece of property to rent out to existing college students and then uh, aggressively pay on that mortgage so that by the time 15 years, 20 years goes by, ideally the mortgage is paid off. And now when a kid goes to college, they have the opportunity to live rent-free uh, or get rental income from their friends so they can learn the, the power of money as well. Um, a lot of people will do buy and hold strategies when it comes to uh, keeping their first house that they bought. And so they'll, they'll buy a property, they'll move into it, they'll live there for a period of time, a year or two, and it's time to move up. But hell, that, that piece of property was great. And you may, might have bought a, a cheaper piece of property because your first time home and on top of that, maybe you're, the area that you live in is appreciated, so you couldn't go get that house for the same price anyways. So all those things lend towards, well, a good piece of real estate is a good piece of real estate. Let's keep it. And so people will hold on that property and, and rent it after they leave. And that might be literally their first rental property, but it wasn't intended when they bought it, right? So buy and hold rental strategy for real estate investing uh, is about uh, making sure that you have a nut that you can cash flow or at least cover. So whatever that monthly payment is, inclusive of taxes and insurance, I hope you would uh, account for upkeep. Uh, and certainly if you have a property manager, that has to go into the equation as well, uh, along with potential a month or two that is, is unrented, right? Uh, during the transition periods. Uh, all that hopefully with the right rental income would be enough that the rents would cover all that and a little bit more, okay? So that's more for buy and hold. Um, speculation type of rental, uh, real estate rental, uh, sorry, real estate property is also something that, that, uh, people do. It's a higher risk. It's a longer term usually, uh, but it's a, a higher payoff quite often. Uh, I've got a long-term friend of mine. One of the first clients I ever had, uh, recently deceased last two years, he, he's deceased. But what he did for 15 years that I knew him was they would go, he and a partner would go buy, um, key corners, 
So when you think about, you know, all cities, especially Texas are all growing, uh, you know, not all cities, I shouldn't say that, you know, Detroit didn't grow for a couple of years there, obviously, but um, cities that are growing, you start to see where the next streets are going to be. You kind of see where in five or 10 years, the city will grow and envelop the next kind of area. And so um, from a buy and hold, but more of a speculative strategy, what people will do is they'll go buy a key corner. So what this guy would do is he'd go look out in San Antonio before 1604 was 1604 years ago. It was a single lane highway 25 years ago, all the way around the city. And it was the country and there were ranches off 1604. Well, now people know in San Antonio that 1604 is just the outer loop. And now there's other loops outside of it. Like uh, 46 is, t- is basically turning into the next loop outside of San Antonio. Uh, but what he'd do is he'd go in that furthest out major thoroughfare in a key corner where a major road crossed a major road, but it's not yet developed. He'd go buy the acreage around those corners, thinking that in 10 years or 20 years, uh, if the city keeps on growing around it, that's a great place to put commercial properties, great place to put a uh, CVS, a great place to put a, um, a gas station. And so um, it's obviously another long-term buy and hold, but it's very speculative because in the meantime, there's typically no cash flow. So somebody who's going to buy that, they're going to service the debt and now their other monies are going to keep on making a payment on it where they pay for it in cash and they're going to sit on it for a long period of time, three, four, 10 years for the properties around it to, to or, or the city to kind of grow around it. But then all of a sudden that property is worth a lot. The reason why I say it's worth a lot in, ca- in those types of cases is when you're buying key corners ahead of a city, what you're doing is you're paying for buy the acreage price, but then you're selling it by the foot, right? So you can imagine if you're buying it for three, five, seven, ten thousand 10,000 an acre, but then you end up selling it by the foot, not by the acre, um, for five, 10, $20 a foot, massive, massive, massive appreciation if you're right and you guessed right, and that's why it's called a speculative investment for real estate. Uh, not advisable in general for the rookie, um, you know, because you're in a you're in a uh, you're in a position where you'll be paying taxes uh, and upkeep on it for a prolonged period of time. And land in and of itself is typically pretty illiquid, meaning that if you needed to sell it, it's going to sit on the market typically longer unless it's already in a good position. Okay, um, so that's another one. Another type of real estate investing is flipping, right? So uh, I'm sure everyone by this point has watched HGTV and they're all masters about what a house is supposed to look like. Um, Listen, I've watched those shows a lot and most of them are are idiots. Um, There are some that are very good. Most are idiots. Uh, It's appealing to the Sunday night drinking wine on the couch and everyone can be a millionaire mentality. But um, the reason why I say lots of those aren't correct is because there's being there's so much money being put into them to make them look amazing for the TV show that realistically the price itself wasn't a real profitable endeavor. And so um, I'm not poking fun at a specific TV show. I can think of about a dozen that I think are BS for lack of better terms, uh, but there are a few on there and you get the, the point. The point is that you're going to buy a uh, a distressed house, a distressed sale, uh, a property that needs repair, needs uh, upgrading, that's super old or uh, just didn't have the correct upkeep in the last couple of years by the previous owner or tenant. You're going to dress it up, put lipstick on the pig. Um, you would uh, hopefully get some sound advice from a great realtor uh, or decorator 
if you're going to add on walls and or rooms, things like that, obviously you're going to have to talk to uh, engineers and 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 get some good uh, architectural plans done. But the point is, is that you're going to take something that's not worth that much, put some lipstick on it, and sell it for more, and ideally pretty quickly. Okay, uh, this is an area I've been doing for years. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. My first flip ever was I call it the Mamacita House. It was a small property out in the west side of San Antonio, out in Bronze Station area. Uh, it was uh, I bought it for. $50,000. Uh, it was a cash offer, bought it for $50,000 what it was. Somebody had died in the property. Um, it, it was not a great property. It smelled like you can't believe. Um, my, my wife will forever remember this because Christy remembers going in there because in her first property, she wanted to be involved in picking out the colors and, and the countertops and all that stuff. And we walked in and she's pregnant at the time. And she literally almost threw up on the floor, not from morning sickness, but because of the smell and ran outside and said, well, you're on your own here. Uh, but if I were you, I'd probably pick these colors, right? Um, what's interesting is I only put 7,000 bucks into it um, because all we did was, again, here's the colors and here's the countertops. And here's, uh, we had to remove bars from the windows because there were bars in the windows and uh, put in some new appliances because half of them weren't working. But that was it. And it was $7,000 all in. So acquisition price is a word to think about the the price at which you acquire the property was 50,000 plus 3,000 closing costs so the acquisition price was 53,000 the cost of repairs another uh, term that you're going to hear a lot about uh, was 7,000 so all in all is in for right out about 60,000 bucks um, i put it on the market with a realtor uh, within 30 days and we sold it 30 days later and uh um, and so literally in less than a 90 day period of time, um, I sold it for $91,000. So in that example, I had a $50,000 investment, 60,000 all in, um, and I sold it for 90, making uh, 30,000 on my, on my 60, uh, all within 90 days, which accounts for a very good cash on cash return on investment, which I'll explain momentarily. Um, but for me as a cash investor, that was important to understand because I know, know that the faster that you can spend the money, the faster you can rehab and flip it, A, the safer you are, and B, the bigger the rate of return, right? So just using easy math, just basic math, if I had 60,000 involved and I netted 30 more, right, then I had a 50% cash and cash rate of return. But that's on an annualized basis. So if I did that in three months and I could keep on reinvesting that money and st keep on spinning it, you know, it's not a 50% rate of return on that money. If I can keep that money spinning, in theory, I could have a 200% rate of return over the course of a year if I can keep that money moving. So the velocity of money, the speed at which you turn it and get your money back and turn it again, the faster you do that when you're dealing with flipping, the better your rate of return on an annual basis. And so that was, that's a super important concept that I lucked into and I learned early just by accident because I bought the right property. Um, I'll tell you that the second property did not go so well, right? So the second property I bought uh, was a property on the east uh, side of San Antonio. Uh, I was trying to roll my money back out and, um, uh, and I bought a piece of property through a wholesaler. Didn't know the wholesaler, uh, so there was no trust there. It was somebody that was uh, referred to me, seemed like a nice enough guy, so I did listen. I did buy the property. They had an estimate of repairs that were incorrect, and very quickly I realized that this was a POS, as in piece of shit. And uh, the reason why I say that is instead of the, the acquisition price for that one was about 120, 
Estimated uh, repairs were 25, so I was going to be in for 125. Uh, estimated sales price to sell on the flip side was going to be 150 to 160. Um, I had just accomplished something similar, you know, 30 days earlier. So I thought, easy peasy, I can knock that out in a month or two and get it sold in three, and I'll get another $25,000 return. Well, I got into the property, and uh, of course, it wasn't, I didn't do an inspection up front, which I'll talk about momentarily. And so, um, it was. It took me a second to understand that. Oh, wait. There's a foundation issue. We fixed the foundation, which was like twelve thousand dollars. But when you fix the foundation, it broke the plumbing underneath the house. Oops. There's another six thousand dollars. Of course, when that ha- when when the foundation was also fixed, it kind of re-leveled the property and it kind of broke uh, uh, corners of doors. Uh, sheetrock was broken. So then I had to go back through and instead of the easy paint job, I had to fix and and uh, and fill seams and these big cracks that were created. And then, and when it got to the end of this, all of a sudden I realized that by the time I'm going to sell this property with 7% closing costs between real estate agents and seller costs, I was going to make no money. I was within like a thousand bucks. And so uh, my wife still laughs at me to this day, but my buddy and I, I was in it with a partner that my, my buddy and I sat there and we literally had to hand paint it because we were so close in the numbers, we knew that if we didn't hand paint it, we would actually lose money. And by the time we we finished this project up, about a month and a half longer than it should have taken, at the end of the day, we both netted 500 bucks. Like we didn't lose money um, and you can't go broke making a profit, but I would argue that for all the labor and the time, the energy and the stress, all the third parties, the foundation guys and all those guys made plenty of money, the plumbers, the electricians, they all made their money. The realtors all made their money. The, 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 the guy that sold it to me, the wholesaler, he made his money. And for all that, my buddy and I made 500 bucks each. So that's the buyer beware. Now you can't go broke making a profit, but that's not a good investment, right? Um, and then I'll tell you a bad story. So um, I've probably gone through 50 properties at this time between flipping properties, wholesaling properties, um, buy and hold that I still own, um, all, all the different types I've done, uh, done to some speculation. And I've won in all but three, but but the, one of the three that I lost on was super, super, super ugly. Um, and so basically I bought this property. I wanted to buy a, and keep a new rental property for a long term. It was in the right area. It had been completely rehabbed. And um, it wasn't done right. And so because of some negligence on my side of not getting a full appraisal, uh, full appraisal inspection that ahead of time, because again, I thought I knew the actors involved. The reality is, is that um, I, a year after I bought the property, I got a cease and desist order from the city saying you can no longer rent this property out. We can see that there was some work done on the property. There were no permits filed when you rehabbed it. So I called the guy out there, nothing, it's a big deal. Called the agent out there uh, who was involved in, in the sale, the purchase and all the rehab itself. And what we thought was going to be a slap on the wrist, a couple of fines, get the permits redone ended up with uh, in the order of $45,000 of losses and one year of lost rent because I had to tear off all the walls. I had to move the water heater. I had to uh, add a joist in the ceiling because the roof was caving in. Uh, I had to move the AC. Um, Literally, I had to tear out everything that was done and redo it all and lost the rent for the year, but still had to pay taxes, still had paid insurance, still had to do the work uh, to finally get back to where I'm able to rent it again um, and so on a, that property was only a $150,000 property. So you can't take a $35,000 bath on it for a year and expect to come out whole, right? So good, bad, and ugly. 
um, that's kind of the pieces of what happens with real estate investing. So let me tell you some easy things to do that are safer ways to do things, generally speaking. And then I want to talk about some players that you need to uh, get to know, interview, and check references on before you really dive in all the way. Because um, we all know a, a little bit. There's what's not what we know that kills us in real estate investing. It's what we don't know. And usually, unfortunately, and every real estate investor will tell you the same thing. You learn quickly when you get an extra $5,000 slap on the hand or a $30,000 mistake done where you end up not being able to sell a property because the valuation uh, was not correct, done done well up front, or the square footage wasn't right up front uh, when you bought it from a wholesaler that you didn't know. So I would say the first and best way to get involved with real estate investment, believe it or not, is to buy a house to live in. So if you're watching this and you've never... Uh, and you're thinking about getting a real estate investment, but you don't own a home, the best piece of real estate you can own is the one that you live in, okay? Uh, the reason why I say that is the rates are the lowest, the down payment is the lowest. Uh, you typically get tax breaks in each, uh, you know, depending on which state you're in. But for example, in, te in Texas, uh, if you live in the property as your homestead, then you get a little bit of a discount on the taxes. On top of that, if you happen to be over 65 or a disabled vet or 100% disabled vet for the extreme, they don't even have to pay property taxes on the property that they live in as their primary residence, right? So um, you're able to get into it and more importantly, get use out of it, right? So we're not relying on somebody else having to rent it from us. We're getting use from it. So we all have to live somewhere. I'd rather your money go towards building your equity than your money go towards building an investor's equity, if that makes sense. Um, if you plan to move in less than two years, leaving the city, I wouldn't buy uh, because there's too little, there's too much risk in two years. You know, here I am sitting in an empty office by myself because guess what? COVID-19 that didn't exist three months ago or four months ago is now here. It's going to affect real estate prices a little bit. We don't know how bad or how far or what cities, but it's going to probably affect it. So somebody that might be planning to buy a house to live in for a year or two and then leave the state, uh, it's inadvisable in these kind of conditions, right? Now, if you're going to buy it, live in it for a couple of years and then leave and keep the property as a real property, different story. That is totally an okay and a good plan in my opinion. But the first and best real estate investment you can do is to live in the property yourself. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm going to be doing an interview with a guy named Abel. I'll call him Abel P for right now, but we, uh, he's a client of mine that I met 12 years ago. And um, I remember he came in my office, he sat down, he'd never bought a property before. We had this exact conversation. He's like, I want to get into real estate investment. And I read all these books and he does read a lot of books. And I said, well, first thing is buy one, live in it. And then the second choice would be move out in two years and go buy another piece of property and keep the old property. Okay. The reason is, is that you were able to finance a maximum amount on the old property. And you can now, as long as you can rent it out to cover your nut, you now have your first rental property that somebody else is paying to create equity and wealth for you. And you're moving on for another low down payment, 3% down or 5% down loan. The reason why I say this is the number one biggest reason why people can't get into real estate is down payment. And investment loans require a 20% down loan, minimum. Uh, there are, I shouldn't say that, there's some lenders that will do 15% down. But to get to good rates and good fees, 25% down is really the magic number. So planning on 20 to 25% down for a down payment is usually enough to stop people in their tracks from buying investments. But if you can buy your first house for 3% down or 3.5% down or a veteran is zero down, um, now you've got you've gotten into the real estate game, right? Uh, and once you get into it, you get kind of hooked. You're probably in it for life. Um, there's very few people that go into it for a couple of years and then they're like, ah, screw this. We're just going to lease forever. Very few people actually do that. 
Um, so now that you're in the game, you're building your wealth through your own payments or through somebody else's payments. You move on to that second house, that next house you buy, as long as you live in the property as your primary residence, you then again can do a low down payment or no down payment loan, right? Um, there are three loan types. It's important to talk about this again as a reminder from an earlier session. But the three types are primary residence, second home, and investment properties. And it's really important to understand that this is an area of fraud, as in mortgage fraud, as in you go to jail and you don't look good in orange fraud, um, if you misrepresent the intent with a property. So do not tell a lender you're going to live in a property as your primary residence to get a low down payment or a lower rate and then never move into it. If you get caught, you will go to jail. So don't do that crap, right? But again, if you're moving up to your next house, you bought your $150,000 starter home. Now it's time to buy your $250,000 move up house. And again, you can move into as your primary residence. What the intent is, is to occupy that property within 60 days. And your intent is to not receive any income on that property at all in the first 12 to 24 months. Okay. Now intent can change. So after two years, like I said, you're pretty safe. If you move out, you want to rent it to somebody, cool, go for it. But your intent at the time of closing that you're signing a legally binding instrument is why you can go to jail if you lie and commit fraud is that you're going to occupy this property as your primary residence within 60 days. Okay. A second home is different. Same thing. Uh, it only requires 10% down. So you don't have to do 20% down. It has same rates or similar rates to, to primary loans. So it seems like a good way to take advantage of the system. But once again, dude, like it says that you intend to occupy this property for at least two weeks a year for you to live in, for you to reside in your second home two weeks a year, and that you don't intend to get any rental income on this property. Now, on second homes, if you think about like a mountain house or a beach house, yes, it is acceptable in most cases that if you need to rent it out to a friend for a little bit, or, or like if you have a winter Texan scenario where somebody rents for just the winter time, but then it's your second home all summer long, there are uh, a possibilities of doing loans that are second homes with that kind of thing in nature. Um, but if it's if your intent is to receive income, make this like a VRBO, short-term rental all the time, it's an investment property. It's not a second home. Don't commit mortgage fraud, right? And of course, the third loan type is an investment property. It requires more money down. The rates are higher. Uh, so here we are sitting at the first or second day of April when I'm recording this. Uh, you'll probably listen to this in a couple of weeks. But uh, investment property rates are definitely in the mid to high fours, whereas primary rates are in the threes. Um, and so uh, don't be um, tempted to go for the lower down payment, lower rate by misleading your loan officer. Because if you get caught, it's just really bad things. But those are the loan types and how you do it. At the end of the day, rates in the mid to high fours, even low fives are great rates for investment properties. It's just not worth the risk, right? So the first and second best ways to, to buy and get involved in real estate is buy your primary residence, keep it, then move into your second house. And a lot of people do this over and over and over again. Um, there's some reasons, and I'm not a CPA, but from a tax perspective, uh, there's something called short-term gains versus long-term gains, gains, and it applies to real estate as well. So uh, if you flip a property, you buy a property and sell it within a year, then uh, at this time, the last time I checked, you are susceptible to short-term gains, which means that whatever that profit is, is going to be taxed at your real income tax bracket. So if you're in the 30% or 40% tax bracket, then you're going to be paying 40% on the profit. So it's not going to be as, as good of a return. Uh, so you, that's why you, your profit has to be pretty substantial to justify that, right? But if you keep a property for a year or more, it goes into the long-term capital gains. 
And so you're limited. I, I want to say it's currently 20%. Last time I checked, again, consult your CPA. But I believe long-term is currently 20%. Um, and so again, if you're in that 30 or 40% tax bracket, you're paying half the taxes. So what I like to do a lot when I'm even flipping properties is I'll buy a property, I'll keep it. I'll rent it out for a year. After the year's over, then I'll kick the, the renter out. I'll fix it up and I'll sell it. And that way I get the flip for the, the gain in the property value, but I pay lower taxes. I think it's a really good way to do things if you're really trying to maximize your dollar, minimize your exposure, uh, because you know you, you still want that velocity of money going, but um, if you're giving up half of it to the government, screw that, keep your, keep your money, right? Um, the team that you really need to amass, and this is where it's where, you know, you're, you can't learn it all until you jump in. You know, I know a lot of people that are paralyzed um, by analysis. Uh, going back to my story about Abel P, he had come in, he had bought his first house, bought his second house, did it three times. The guy keeps on leveraging real estate and he's got over 400 doors. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, uh, 12 years later, he's got over 400 doors, uh, meaning 400 rental properties. Um, and he started with the first and second, just like I described. So that's the best way to get into it. So as you amount your real estate team, what does that look like? Well, um, the key players I would make sure that you know, like, and trust, and you double check are going to be, uh, who's going to help you assess a value of a piece of property, right? Um, you don't want to be in for option money, earnest money, uh, inspection money, time, uh, and energy only to find out that the property you're buying isn't worth what you're buying it for. And certainly, if you're thinking about doing some sort of flip scenario, you got to make sure that whether it's an appraiser that you pay for that's a good appraiser or a great realtor that understands the market and gives you a CMA, which is a comparative market analysis, that is good because any crackhead realtor can do a CMA, but not all realtors are equal, just like all lenders aren't equal, just like all doctors aren't equal. So just because they can do a CMA doesn't mean that those numbers are real. Uh, a CMA is... Uh, like if you're doing a flip, you want to find out if I did these repairs or added this bedroom, what would the house be worth afterwards? So it's critical that that number is right because you're making a lot of big money decisions based on it. So interviewing and getting to know realtors, especially realtors that deal with investments regularly, they understand all the jargon like cash on cash return on investment, what's your cap rate. Um, uh, they understand uh, timeliness, accuracy, they are they err on the side of caution and are conservative. Even better, if they put their money where their mouth is, that if they can't sell for a certain price, they'll discount their fees a little bit to help offset whatever those losses are. Uh, I'm not encouraging realtors to give away their, their money because I do believe that realtors earn it, especially the good ones. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, making sure you've got a great realtor that can give you a good estimate of value at the time of purchase and will be worth with repairs uh, after the fact is super important. They also can do comparative market analysis on what it's going to rent for. So now when you're buying a piece of property, you can make me with a lender. The lender's the second one to make sure that A, you qualify, B, you know what the terms are. And now we can compute an actual monthly payment if you're going to do like a buy and hold scenario. Yeah, but you got to know, is it going to cash flow or not? So what's the rental income going to be? Um, if you ask around three different realtors what the top three agents or top three lenders are in the town, more than likely, you're going to have at least one overlap. That one overlap or two overlaps are probably ones you want to talk to. And again, you don't want to just take it for face value. You quiz them on how many rental properties do you own, Mr. Lender? Uh, how many investment properties do you uh, have you dealt with in the past personally? Because, for example, I'm an investor myself, so it's really easy for me to give advice to my clients. I tell people what I would do and what I have done, not what I read in a book one day a long time ago. 
Uh, speaking of books, another great book to read is called uh, uh, Millionaire Real Estate Investments. Millionaire Real Estate Investing, excuse me, is a great book as well. Um, but yeah, the realtor partner, the lender partner are the probably the two first starting blocks. Outside of that, uh, obviously an appraiser, uh, if, you, if you're trying to do it a little bit on your own, but an appraiser is going to make sure that they assess the value of the property. A surveyor, um, you don't want to buy a property that is actually built on the wrong side of an easement. And you want to know where the easements are because if there's an easement uh, that says that you cannot build in this 10 feet because of an electric line underground, you don't want to buy that thing. You're going to add on an extra bedroom and bathroom into that backyard if you can't do it, right? Um, so that's super important to understand. Um, past the surveyor uh, inspectors, uh, inspectors that are up to date with code so they can go through and, and it costs three, 400 bucks. Best money you ever spend to avoid finding out that, Hey, this most recently rehab property I was going to live in or buy for investment. The mistake that I made isn't up to code, right? There's, so there's going to be problems. Um, so they're going to go through and find out what's up to what, what is and isn't up to code and tell you what repairs you might have to do. Um, a general contractor, and this one you're going to have to ask around for referrals for sure, because the good ones are few and far between, but a good general contractor that while you're in the option period, before you bought the property can go through there and give you within a reasonable expectation. Yeah, there's always something comes up, but with a very small variance of what it's really going to cost to repair this to the way you want it to be, uh, a great general contractor is worth its weight in gold. I've gone through dozens and I've landed on one that I love and I keep. I don't even say his name because I want to use him for myself. He's amazing. But a general contractor is super, super, super important. Obviously, you can add in trades individually like uh, electricians and plumbers and painters uh, because you want to know, especially if you get into this in volume, that you're going to get some level of discount over time with if you're going to do a lot of volume with somebody. Um, title companies are super important uh, because a title company is going to make sure there's no previous liens or encumbrances on the property itself. The last thing you want to do is buy a property, especially cash, uh, um, and not go through a title company or um, getting title insurance. Uh, I think it's super important to do because you want to make sure that there's not a tax lien on the property because you don't that supersedes all liens. Like uh, the, the state can and will take your house from you, right? Uh, if you owe taxes or if there's a another lien on the property because the previous home, homeowner did roof work but never paid the roofer. You want to make sure there's, there's that insurance in place to protect you from any previous liens or encumbrances so that you have clear title the day that you close on the property. Um, I've got a great title company reference that we use all the time. All right, another uh, couple people that you should have in, in your arsenal that you should be interviewing. I think one that's super, super important is a property manager, okay? A property manager is somebody that's going to take on the workload of uh, listing your property for rent vetting potential buyers, I'm oh, sorry, renters of your property. Uh, they're making the house ready. They manage the cash flows ins and out. If you have to evict somebody, they do the eviction process. In my opinion, a property manager is worth its, is worth its weight in gold. Uh, there's a couple local ones here in San Antonio I'm happy to refer you to. Uh, I've used personally Red Wagon Realty forever. That's who I personally use. I know that Peace of Mind Property Management is another great local company as well. Um, but the point of saying that is, that I, pro you know, I'm a finance guy, so I know how to balance the books and I property managed myself for a couple of years for a couple of properties. At the end of the day, uh, when a pipe busts on Christmas day, if you're the property manager, you get to field that question. So that's why I think it's worth the 10% of the gross revenue that it takes to have a property manager. Um, so that's one of those things to factor in and, and interview because you want to make sure that property manager is good at leasing it out quickly, uh, uh, great at keeping up with repairs. 
you want to make sure that they are uh, good with the books and there's a transparency of where money is going. Uh, they're they're relying to, uh, relaying to you the appropriate tax information at the end of every year. Uh, and uh, it's a relationship you should build off of because a lot of property managers, once you get your third, fourth, or fifth property, there's a little bit of a discount over time. So as you build your portfolio, having that relationship is important. And guess what? Property managers also know investors that are trying to sell their properties. So it's a great source of, of a relationship. If you're the first one that they call and say, hey, Josh, there's this other uh, investor that wants to get out of the property, they're retiring, they want to be done with all investments. You might be able to sweep in there and take over an already tenant-occupied property and maybe at a little bit of a discount. So I think a property manager is super important to understand. Uh, another, let me go with my notes here. Another uh, uh, person that, to keep in mind is an engineer uh, and foundation repair people, okay? I've always said uh, an AC people. So the, the, the three biggest costs associated with rehabbing or fixing up a property or owning a property are always roof, foundation, and AC. Roof, foundation, AC. So an AC you can typically offset by just paying for a home warranty. Um, if you don't want to have a big $6,000 dip into a, your, your pocket every, one, every couple of 10 years, then a home warranty is a good way to offset that. You pay four, five, 600 bucks a year. When it goes out, it's covered. Uh, but roofs, unless there's a hailstorm or major you know, uh, wind, it's not going to be covered except out of pockets. So it can be a big ticket item. So knowing a good roofer that can quote it correctly and not gouge your eyeballs out. And the foundation people, holy cow, foundation people. Uh, you can get three different quotes from three different foundations companies on the same house and literally one will be 6,000, one will be 12,000, one will be $20,000 on the same house. Um, I have found this to be a ugly area of the business because there's supply and demand. There's not a whole lot of people who want to tunnel underneath the house and jack it up. Uh, and, and if they're super busy, they'll just charge you whatever the hell they want to charge you and you'll take it or leave it. Uh, and so getting to know some of those people, especially if your inspector or engineer says that there's a foundation repair issue, you gotta know what you're getting into before you own the property. Um, so I'd say that's super important. One last thing I'd also like to add on is approaching what's called a 1031 exchange company. Uh, if you don't know one or, or know of one, you can um, ask a title company, they'll typically give you some uh, re, uh, referrals for this. But a 1031 exchange company is, uh, there's a way, so going back to, I wanna flip a property within a year, but I don't wanna pay 40% on it. There's lots of rules that equate to a 1031, but basically the gist of it is, is that if you sell a property through a 1031 exchange and you never put your hands on the money itself, so the day you close, the money goes to title, instead of the title company seeing the money to your bank account, they send it to this 1031 exchange company, then there's some protections that the IRS gives that if you identify a new property or several new properties, that you're gonna buy with the money in the 1031 exchange within, if they're identified within 90 days and closed on within six months, then it's a tax deferred, not tax-free, tax deferred exchange. So you can move the money from this property over into these two properties that are like in kind or different or bigger. Um, and now I don't have to pay taxes. So this is a way to build on your wealth over time. It's a really great thing to research uh, because especially if you're selling within a year or you're selling and there's going to be a big old pile of money that you're going to owe uh, uh, taxes on, you want to defer that as long as you can so you can keep your money working for you. Uh, now, one aside in this, and this is the last uh, position I would add on that you should uh, have involved is a CPA. Um, there are so many tax advantages to rental properties, so many I can't even count, that you need to have a great CPA to walk through what closing costs you can write off, what repair costs you can write off, 
how you can structure this in a way that is that gives you some additional uh, protections on your property. Um, and I, I should actually add in a, an attorney. You know, I think a lot of people honestly should protect themselves and not own a property in their own name once they're doing real properties. It should be an entity like an LLC or an LP uh, because you'd, if somebody sued you, you would want to make sure that um, that's limited to the property itself and not to all of your assets. So a CPA, an attorney would probably round out the team that you'd want to amass over time. Over time, So start with realtors and lenders. Um, past that, contractors. Past that, the rest of your financial team, which I'll get into in a different, uh, uh, different uh, podcast. But overall, what I can tell you is this. In my personal wealth, I can account for of my existing cash uh, invested in the bank's stock market um, right now that more than more than 35% of that was generated by doing spec homes, speculation, rental properties, and property flipping. Um, and it's just because of staying involved in the industry. Yes, I've had some losses, but with a little bit of a foresight, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of uh, working with better and better referring partners and trusted advisors, uh, I've been able to mitigate the risks of real estate to a level that I can accept. And that's the thing that you're looking for is what level of risk are you willing to accept? Because with big rewards, there are typically bigger consequences too. So with big gains, you can have big risks. And so just make sure you do your homework up front. I don't think it, uh, that, that you should ever get into investments without having a mentor of some sort. Um, find a real estate investor that has already done it and is doing it at a high level. There's plenty of investment groups to get involved in. Uh, there's plenty of chat groups to get involved in. There's plenty of coaches that deal with this stuff. But you want to talk to somebody that's not, uh, that didn't do it 20 years ago, that, but is actively doing it now and kind of know the local traps, the local resources, and just ask them for help. You'd be amazed how many uh, real estate millionaires uh, were given guidance on their way up and they're happy to give you guidance on your way up. So finding a local uh, real estate mogul, for lack of better terms, would be somebody that you, you should approach and say, hey, listen, Bob, I've heard amazing things about you. I've told that you've been a local legend. You've bought uh, 100 doors uh, or, you, or you're able and you have 400 doors. I'd love to sit down with you to bend your ear, buy you coffee, buy you a drink. And obviously, if it's still uh, shut down in San Antonio and we've got social distancing, I can still do a virtual happy hour with you. Um, and let's get to like, tell me what to watch out for, what to do, what not to do. Um, because a good mentor will talk you out of investments. A good mentor will make sure that you've got enough cash reserves. A good mentor will tell you why not to buy something rather than to do something, uh, just to make sure you've thought about what you don't know, right? Um, but all in all, you know, when you really get down to it, whether you uh, buy it and hold it to uh, live in, buy it and hold it to get rental income, buy it and hold it to speculate on a key corner uh, or a commercial property, which uh, is a different subject altogether, or whether you buy it to flip it quickly, there's lots of ways to get involved in real estate. Um, you're not going to ever learn until you jump in and get your feet wet. Uh, and I'll tell you, come into the water, the water is warm. Uh, but that would be the starting point for sure. Uh, if you have additional questions or comments, please like or subscribe to our channel. I'd love to hear from you. Go ahead and comment below or share this with somebody that you know that might be thinking about buying, selling, or refinancing and might need some real estate advice. 
Otherwise, until next time, I am your host, Josh Sigmund. This is Sigmund Sense, and we'll see you on the flip side. Bye-bye now.